This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. It's reminded this past week of a certain vignette that was described in a book that I read, oh, about 10 years ago by a guy named Carl Fred Broderick. And in the book, he describes this scene in his stake. It's kind of an ad hoc induction ceremony of sorts, not an official meeting, but kind of like a fireside at the stake center in which the stake young women's organization inducted all the 11-year-olds in this particular stake into the stake young women's organization. All the 11-year-old girls, that is. And the theme of this elaborate induction ceremony was the Wizard of Oz. And we've all been to these type of things. I mean, these are fairly commonplace. And we as the LDS are pretty good at pulling these things off, aren't we? We're clever. We're creative. And this induction ceremony was excellent, world-class. And it culminated with a speech by kind of a hired gun, a ringer. You know, one of these local... LDS, motivational speakers, maybe she wrote a few books. I mean, I'm reading a little bit into it. That's not explicitly stated by the author of this vignette. But, you know, you can imagine the type of person that he's talking about. You know, come to the induction ceremony for all young women, featuring, you know, Gladys Johansson, author of My Standards Bring Me Joy. You know, you know so you kind of get a vibe of what's going on at this induction ceremony and the stagecraft involved. And again, I'm reading a little into it, but that's kind of the sense you get. This highly elaborate, orchestrated thing with an outsider brought in, someone who's really talented at giving speeches and writing stories and inspiring the youth in ways that they can relate to. And this woman gets up and she's right out of central casting and she's beautiful and talented and put together and well-spoken. And basically what she says is this. If you stay on the yellow brick road, remember it was Wizard of Oz themed. If you stay on the yellow brick road, well... You can have everything that I have. That's what this woman said. And she pointed to her excellent return missionary husband and his great job and the money they had in the house they had and their beautiful kids and and presumably her book writing career and her wonderful mission as a motivational speaker and how she's been guided to do all these things and blah, 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 blah. And she kind of dangled this all out as the fruits of good living, of which the yellow brick road and sticking to it represented good living. You know, stick to the yellow brick road, keep the commandments, keep your standards, obey the word of wisdom. Keep yourself morally clean. Do everything we tell you to, and things will work out for you. You'll end up in Oz like me, and everything will be great. Amen. And then the stake president, who was Carlford Broderick, the author of this book, he got up and strode to the pulpit, and he said, while this has been an awesome ceremony and tremendously creative and clever, I'm here to tell you, girls, that nothing you heard tonight was true particularly the premise of keeping on the yellow brick road, I'm here to tell you, sadly, that the gospel will not protect you from misery and adversity in your life. That not everything is going to work out great exactly how you want, merely because you're, you're obeying the commandments and doing what you're supposed to. The gospel is not an insurance policy against misery. You, know, you can imagine the collective gasps from the crowd, particularly the organizers. Carlford Broderick went on to say that the gospel while not an insurance policy against adversity, is a tool to deal with adversity when it inevitably comes. And then he sort of nodded and said, Amen, and then he sat down. What a great scene. What a memorable scene. And is it not illustrative of the tension inside our community and the battles that we face inside our communities and inside ourselves as we try to make sense of this whole gospel thing? And what I find so interesting is that, in a sense, they're both right. 
the expert speaker, the perfectly quaffed writer of inspirational books, and the unusually cynical, hard-truth-speaking stake president. They're both kind of right, aren't they? You know, the motivational speaker is kind of right because the facts are, if you're honest, free from drink, hard-working, and you live according to a moral code, you are going to have a better life than you would otherwise, all things equal, ceteris paribus, as they say, which means all things equal. And so what I mean is if you take two people who are exactly the same in every way, and one's relatively honest, happy, hardworking, free from addictions, manages to avoid STD and teen pregnancy, and et cetera, et cetera, that person, ceteris paribus, will prosper more, will succeed more. And it doesn't take a PhD in sociology to see that obvious fact, because there are cultures and places in the world where there are no moral standards at all, places where corruption, infidelity, theft, and all sorts of moral degradation dominate, and those places are disasters. And you don't have to be a genius to see the link between the fundamental lack of rules and personal responsibility and the complete chaos that reigns in those places. On the other hand, the motivational speaker in this case goes too far, doesn't she? Because she seems to be preaching that you can control every single outcome and result, that you can somehow manipulate God through your good conduct, your religiosity, your strict obedience to, to, to trick him into somehow giving you everything that you want, to trick him into making every goal you set for yourself be realized magically. Because you pay your tithing and you don't drink beer. And you go to the temple every month. And something about us knows that that's going too far. At least those of us who have a little bit of experience, a few miles on the odometer, know that that's going too far. While the uninitiated may drink that Kool-Aid eagerly. Because here's the secret to getting whatever you want. And then later in life, you know, experience teaches you things about religiosity and obedience and trying to control God through compliance. And this is where the comments by the state president, Carford Broderick, ring true, don't they? When in spite of your good moral living, your commitment and kindness, you still get fired from the job or your spouse still leaves you or cheats on you or you still fall sick or ill or the book that you write doesn't get picked up by Deseret Book, does not get published, your speaking career doesn't take off. Well, in those type of situations, the words of the state president really ring true, don't they? Well, sort of, because if you're at that juncture in your life, particularly the first time, you're not really sure what the stake president's saying, right? Because it sounds like he's saying the gospel as you understand it is not a guarantee to produce the things that you want, blessings that you want, which is why you've been keeping it all along anyways. It's now suddenly a resource to comfort you when the blessings that you were promised don't come. And, you know, it starts to sound like one great big bait and switch. That, that's what it feels like the very first time you're stuck between the two Gospels, the Gospel of the motivational speaker and the Gospel of the stake president. And, of course, it is two different Gospels or two different ideas or two different aspects of life. And when you enter this part of life for the first time, you can feel tricked. And I think the LDS, we particularly feel like we have a monopoly on being tricked, on being lied to, on being deceived, because there seems to be an excessive abundance of the quaffed motivational speakers in our world who are over-promising the fruits of good living. But I'm here to tell you that we, as the LDS, do not have a monopoly on disappointment and disillusionment 
vis-a-vis our preconceived notions when experience hits the fan. I also want to defend the quaffed motivational speakers of our lives, if for no other reason than because of the simple fact that when disappointment hits, the worst thing you can do is become self-destructive and start developing bad habits. Nonetheless, I also want to acknowledge that there's something missing here and the stake president, as cynical and, and, and as unusual as he was, is onto something too. Because no matter how hard you try to manipulate God with your good conduct, Job-like experiences come for the best of us, which most of us aren't. But they're not coming to punish you for not being the best. They're just coming. Because, as Carlford Broderick wrote, there's a use for adversity. In fact, the title of the book from which I drew the vignette at the beginning of this podcast, written by Carlford Broderick, the title of that book is The Use of Adversity. And I think we all understand the use and the efficaciousness of living to certain standards. There's a use and effectiveness of conducting yourself according to certain standards. And I don't want to get lost in the weeds about what those standards ought to be. I don't, I don't want to debate the minutiae of what is and isn't and should and shouldn't be acceptable. But I think we can all agree at a high level, it's better to live in a moral, non-corrupt, honest type of society. And your life is better when when you have a little bit of control over it. I think we just got to take that as given. Having said that, beyond that, there is a use for adversity. And the gospel that helps us understand the use of adversity is different, maybe even separate, certainly a deeper form than the gospel we're taught at the Wizard of Oz induction ceremonies that we participated in when we were 11 years old. That gospel, this second gospel, is different. This second gospel, that's the gospel of subtraction. That's the gospel where less is more. That's the gospel of submission, the gospel of relinquishing control. That's the gospel of even ignoring thoughts and impulses and feelings. That in the past, in your egoic-dominated state, you may have thought came from the Spirit himself. That's the gospel of allowing. That's the gospel of even accepting that you can't really comply with the first gospel all that well. That's the gospel, I think, that comes and saves us after all we can do. And what is after all you can do? After you've tried to save yourself and you can't, and you realize you can't, then you learn a second gospel. This is the gospel of Peter, the night that Christ was crucified. You remember just a week earlier, Christ and his Galilean band of apostles and disciples stormed into Jerusalem to cheers. They walked across what was the equivalent of the red carpet at the time, a road of palm leaves. I mean, they were heralded as the great next thing. And here's this guy, Christ, and he's riding this donkey and he's the king of Israel It's got the lineage, and we've been doing everything right. We've been preaching, and the gospel of domination has been conquered by us through our great compliance, our great works. And these apostles were reaping the fruit of their hard work, their compliance, their obedience. They were being cheered. Well, a week later, Peter flips out when the centurions take Christ captive. He's in such denial, he grabs a sword and cuts off the ear of a guy trying to defend his ego's understanding, his 11-year-old inductee's understanding of life and the great control he has over it. His control not over life, but over God. 
because of his mastery. So he grabs the sword in one final act of untested bravado, one final exhibition of his egoic control over the world, over the universe. And he chops off the centurion's ear. And Peter must have been quite surprised when Jesus himself picked up that ear and healed the man and reminds Peter that those who live by the sword or control die by the sword and their own control. The confusion for Peter is just beginning because later on that night, Christ is found guilty. The next day he's led through town and then he's crucified. And Peter's watching all this and he has a serious moment of crisis. He's stuck between the two Gospels, that terrible no-man's land, where the words of the quaffed motivational speaker make no sense anymore, and the words of the tough truth-speaking stake president also make no sense at all, because he has no experience. And then everyone starts pointing at him, saying, hey, aren't you that Galilean? Hey, you're a disciple of this guy who we're killing right now. Maybe we ought to kill you. And of course, Peter freaks out. And denies the whole thing. Isn't that the impulse that we have when things don't go to plan in spite of all of our magical obedience and manipulation of God? He doesn't seem to quite be complying with our compliance. And well, that's upsetting. That's what happened to Peter. And he denied Christ three times and split. Said, I'm out of here. I guess this has all just been confusion. I guess I'll go back to my world before all these experiences start. And of course, you can never do that. You can never go backwards in time. You can never just go back to being a child. Nonetheless, that's what Peter tried to do, as all of us try to do every now and then. We try to go back and hide in simpler times when the quaffed motivational speaker made sense. Peter did that and went back to fishing. I guess I'll just go and be a fisherman again and forget about this whole Jesus thing. But the problem with life is you can never go back and be uninitiated again. You can never become naive anew. And of course, Peter learned this when he saw the risen Christ walking along the banks near where he was fishing, and he jumped out of the boat, and he swam to him. And he was shocked. And then I think Christ begins to introduce the second gospel of the stake president, and he says to Peter, do you love me? Peter's puzzled by this and says, of course, I I love you. Then Christ asks it a couple more times, and we know the story. At the end of this, Christ says, feed my lambs. And I don't think Christ is talking about the first gospel here. Because later he tells Peter, when you're converted, strengthen your brother. Well, we know Peter's converted. He's been following Christ during Christ's entire ministry. So in one sense, Peter is converted. That's not the conversion Christ is talking about, of course. He's talking about this higher gospel where less is more, where submission is more important than compliance where things about Peter's character, personality, habits are taken away. The gospel of subtraction. And how are these things taken away? Well, it starts with, sadly, adversity. Often, because adversity is the thing that makes you realize the limitations of the first gospel. Adversity is really the moment when your brain is telling you something isn't adding up which is all adversity really is. It's usually a mental state. Sometimes it's a physical state. Sometimes you're really starving and you really don't have a home. But most of the time, for most of us, it's a mental state of anguish. My wife's left me. I've lost my job. And then you start cranking through all the horrible things that that implies. And it's all of that projection and guessing and worrying. And that's the adversity. 
And that gets you start to thinking. And then you begin along the path of the second gospel. And you begin slowly to understand, or at least you try to understand, what the stake precedent means, that the gospel is a resource when adversity arrives. This is a moment of awakening. This is a resurrection of sorts. This is redemption. But suddenly, this is all being given to you without much effort because you've already done all that you can do. This is a gospel where you learn you can't do any more. The only thing you can do is to go with it. There are great stories of people who get out of their own way, get out of their own headspace, get out of their own stories, set all these things aside, let them go, acknowledge that the mind and the ego keep propagating them, but are somehow able to separate and just go and let it happen. The story of Elijah in the Old Testament is such a story. We've talked about Elijah before. He's the one who rained down fire on not just the saturated piles of firewood, but also on the 450 priests of Baal, rained down you know, a fiery holocaust on all of them. Talk about giving you a feeling of being in control. He must have felt like he could control the, you know, he must have felt like the most powerful genie in the world, you know, like Jafar, in control of everything through his most excellent obedience and compliance, raining down fire on the priests of Baal and, you know, killing, set a, set, let's set aside the whole killing the priests part of it, but just the power you must have felt when you rained down a tornado of fire on the saturated piles of wood. Well, what happened to Elijah? He got chased out of town by Ahaz and Jezebel. He found himself alone on a cliff, praying that he could die, wishing he had never been born again. Well, what was going on with Elijah? The limits of all that he could do was what was going on. And the Lord sent him to the edge of the cliff, and the winds came, and the rains came, and the fires came, and the earthquakes came, and at each juncture, at each stage, the Lord made it quite explicit that he was not in any of these things. And then came the still, small voice, the still voice inside of Elijah, the voice beyond his ego, beyond his thoughts, beyond his certitude, the voice, the peace, God, God's purposes. We see that in Job's life, the man who through his compliance and perfection seems to seemed to have reached the pinnacle of the abundance gospel, right? He had gotten all the fruits, as promised by the motivational speaker, everything. And what was his reward? After all was taken away was to learn that God is God. And what's most interesting about Job is that at the end of Job, after he had had everything taken away, he was then given double what he had before, not without its massive symbolic meaning there. What does that mean? Well, God loves you. That's what it means. God's going to give you more than you can give yourself through your works. It's what Paul is talking about when he talks about grace and more grace and more grace. And should we break the law? God forbid, writes Paul. You should not break the law, but all comes through grace. Passages in Roman that have confused Christians for millennia. And so what is the second gospel Spoke of by the stake president. How would we sum it up? I think you sum it up by merely saying God is in charge. Maybe you add, and God loves you. Maybe you throw in whatever's happened to you is what should be happening to you. Enjoy it. Embrace it minute by minute by minute. And should you break the law? God forbid. What's most interesting about this path is this is the universal path. 
read books by Catholics, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, read books like The Sin of Certainty, read books like The Power of Positive Intelligence, read DNC 121, or read the book of Job, read Romans for that matter. They all start to sound pretty similar. Forms are different, the specifics, but all of them are preaching a certain freedom after all you can do, a certain liberation, an addition through subtraction, freedom through submission, Increased knowledge by ignoring your own thinking. Very similar experiences. Very similar second gospels. Available for all of God's children. Comforting for those of us who experience disappointment, failure. Terrifying for those who never have. Because deep down we know that Peter is not being held out as an example of something that you might be able to avoid if you work a little harder, believe a little better. Deep down, we know that the disillusionment Peter experienced at the foot of the cross is going to come to all, that there will be a graduation for all from the first gospel to the second, from the law of Moses to the law of Moses being fulfilled. Deep down, we know we're all Peter, and that can scare us a little bit. But then things like looking towards the brass serpent held up by Moses and receiving instant healing suddenly makes sense. Then the Feeding of the 5,000 from a couple of fishes and a couple of loaves makes sense. Then the image of Christ as a being of light, as opposed to a mere victim on the cross, makes sense. Then the promises of the first speaker at the very first vignette that I spoke about in this podcast seem to make sense too, but for entirely different reasons. And that's awesome. Though unexpected, because it was her talk or talks like it that put us on this quest to begin with. Well, that's weird. But it also means that we ought to be grateful for the purveyors of the first gospels of our lives, particularly if those people are well-intended and the fundamental principles they're teaching are true. Of course, they could do better, be more accurate, be more thoughtful, sure. But they're just people, too. They're just doing their best. And a God who can make good out of all things can certainly make something good from the efforts of people doing their best. And the alternative of giving people the benefit of the doubt is a bad one. Because living life cynically and skeptically produces corrosion that's harder to wipe away, harder to get rid of. It's a mindset that's sneakier and more deceptive than the things it itself is even complaining about. The second gospel is hard enough as it is. Don't make it harder by being a cynic and a skeptic about everything. That's a principle we all understand instinctively as well. Poor doubting Thomas comes to mind. Disillusioned, disappointed, much like Peter was. Poor Thomas has been labeled for the eternities as doubting Thomas, an archetype of the person who just can't believe good news exists, won't take a step forward, won't take the chance. It's an inaccurate description of poor Thomas. You know, they came to Thomas and said, hey, you remember the guy you saw killed on the tree? The guy they crucified? Your, your friend, Jesus, remember him? The one you maybe even helped put into the tomb? That guy, well, we saw him walking around. And poor Thomas gave a reasonable response, didn't he? Which was, you know, I'll believe that crock when I see Jesus myself, I've had enough of these fairy tales for a while. I mean, look where it's led us. 
a feeling some of us have had when sitting between the two Gospels. You know, in Thomas's case, where had these delusions, their collective delusions, led them? A reasonable question. You know, they'd led to the execution of their friend. Things hadn't worked out exactly the way this merry band of Galileans had expected, had it? Certainly not the way that they thought they had been promised it would work out. Not only had things not worked out the way they expected, they had worked out quite terribly, not worked out at all. And poor Thomas, for the moment, just couldn't put that disillusionment behind him. And that was Thomas's great sin, to not look up at the proverbial brass serpent again, to not risk disappointment again, to not risk hoping and expecting for something and having those hopes and expectations expectations dashed yet again. He had had enough of that type of adversity, the adversity of his mind telling him that he was insane, crazy, had no judgment. For this he was rewarded with the dubious moniker Doubting Thomas. But the great part about the story of Doubting Thomas is that Christ came to him too and had some honeycomb and some fish with him and showed him the spear mark in his side and the cuts on his hand. That's what's so beautiful about the second gospel. Christ comes anyway. And all that Christ represents comes anyway. In fact, for most of us, that's when Christ does come, when we're sitting on the floor, our face turned into the corner, when we've given up. And that's part of the lesson, too, I think. There's only so much you can do. There's only so much illumination you can teach yourself. There are only so many rules you can keep, service projects you can perform. Because you can't earn understanding of the second gospel. You don't win it or conquer it or comply with it. It just comes like a gift freely, which is what it is. When you slow down enough and are quiet enough to notice it, you got to let go and let be and be aware and let it experience addition by subtraction. We're all the motivational speaker at some point. We're all the stake president at another. We're all Peter and we're all Thomas. And in the end, we'll all end up like Job Not just the suffering Job, but the Job at the end of the story. The Job who was rewarded with twice of that which he had lost before his adversity struck and did its job, before his adversity was useful to him. As it could be for all of us. As it will be for all of us. Well, as usual, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.